0: Well, Jonah chapter 3 is where we are today, Uh, moving on from chapter 2 there, as we continue to work our way through this little four chapters of a minor prophet tucked away here in the Old Testament. Uh, But in Jonah chapter 3, we pick up the story after God commands the fish and it vomits Jonah up onto dry ground. Uh, I had a few of you reach out to me and say you had a hard time keeping a straight face last week with gastric juices being mentioned in the middle of the sermon. Uh, However, that's what's going on here as the fish vomits Jonah on the dry land. And then we pick up in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 10 together this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you, and you can follow along there. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says... They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything... Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them And He did not do it. This is God's Word. Growing up in South Louisiana, I had the opportunity to travel along Interstate 10, both east and westbound, on a number of occasions throughout my childhood, young adult, and even now at times whenever I go home to visit family. But there is a section of I-10 that runs between the city of Lafayette and the city of Baton Rouge in Louisiana that is an 18-mile bridge over the Atchafalaya Basin. Some of you may have driven over the Atchafalaya Basin before. It's the third longest bridge in the United States of America. It was completed back in 1973 and opened to traffic. In fact, along the side of the Atchafalaya Basin bridge, there's still these old call boxes which predate cell phone usage so that if you broke down on that 18 mile bridge you had a place that you could walk to easily and access a landline and call someone for help because it is very sparsely populated there are only two exits going across the atchafalaya basin across those 20 miles nearly 20 miles of water flooded cypress trees marsh and swamp about 70 percent of the atchafalaya basin is flooded forest, and the other 30% is marsh filled with rivers and channels and creeks that cut through there. Um, Sometimes when we've driven across there, you look down and you see the most famous residents of the state of Louisiana, alligators, swimming below the bridge. You see fishermen and boats and all kinds of things. But another thing that you see when you drive across the Atchafalaya Basin is that every couple of miles, there is a turnaround point. All right, there is a place where these two separated independent lanes of traffic moving east and west, there is a place where they are conjoined together by a concrete suspension so that you can turn around. Now, those turnarounds are not open to just anyone and everyone. That have signs on them that say, only for emergency vehicles. So in other words, the only people who are supposed to be in those turnarounds Uh, are the police or the fire or the paramedics, those individuals responding to emergency calls there on the Basin Bridge. So that means if you get on one side of the bridge and you don't stop to go to the restroom before you get to the other side of the bridge, there aren't any convenient places to stop along the bridge. And so you're holding it for 20 miles. Okay, But that also means that if you missed your exit before you get on the bridge... You're driving for about 20 miles as well because the exits that are on the bridge lead to the middle of nowhere, okay? And I mean the middle of nowhere, right? But those turnaround points are only accessible in the instances of emergencies or for emergency use only. Now listen, church, aren't you glad... This morning. I know I am glad that whenever it comes to our relationship with the Lord, that we're always able to make a U-turn. Always. Right? That those turnaround points aren't reserved for emergency use only. But there's always an opportunity to turn and head in the other direction. You don't have to wait 20 miles down the road in order to make the turnaround because it's, it's restricted for emergencies. No, at any point in your life, at any point in time, you can be headed in one direction and you can hang a U-E, right? And head in the opposite direction spiritually. And what the Bible calls that is repentance. That U-turn that we make. Right, the Bible calls it repentance. So I'm heading east, and I make a U-turn, and I head west. Or I'm heading south, and I make a U-turn, and I head north. That's what the Bible calls repentance. where we're heading in one direction, the pattern of our life is flowing with traffic in a particular way, but we come to a place where we make a U-turn. We put on our blinker, on our signal, and we make that big, wide turn, and we turn around, and we head in the exact opposite direction. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And listen, it is available to anyone at any time. Anyone at any time. Right? You don't have to cross the basin in order to get there. You don't have to have an emergency with lights flashing in your windshield in order to turn around and head in the other direction. Now, listen, every book of the Bible, every book of the Bible is written by an author to an audience. By an author to an audience. And most conservative scholars believe that the book of Jonah was either written by or delivered orally through the prophet Jonah to those who came after him. Right, And I'll tell you why I believe that as we get into chapter 4 in the next couple of weeks. But they believe that Jonah is the source material for what we read here in the four chapters of the book of Jonah. So he's the author or the originator of it. And the audience is not the Assyrian's. You realize that the audience were the Jewish people of Jonah's day. That's who Jonah's communicating to. That's the intended audience that was going to be reading these four chapters in the book of Jonah. And so as a result, what Jonah is what Jonah is communicating is something that the the Jewish people of his day needed to hear and to see. And what we see in Jonah chapter three is this we see an example of exemplary repentance that ought to have been an example for the Jewish people of Jonah's day. And you say, well, what did the Jewish people of Jonah's day have to repent for? Well, we'll see that next week. But I want us to look at the example this week and consider what are the marks of real repentance, of authentic, genuine repentance Because I believe we have those rooted here for us in Jonah chapter 3. What do we learn about repentance from this chapter? Four things. Right? Four things. And we're going to hit them quick this morning. But the first one is this. About making those U-turns in life. Is this. Is that repentance is first of all marked by obedience. It is marked by obedience. Notice in the text what the king calls the people to do in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8 when the Word reaches... When it reaches to the king, he issues a decree that the people should turn from their evil ways the violence that is in their hands. Now listen, the Assyrian people were some of the most violent and vicious people on the face of the planet in the ancient world. We said earlier in this series that for the first century Jewish mind to consider the Assyrians, where God was sending Jonah into Nineveh, that the Assyrians were kind of like the Nazi stormtroopers of World War II, or they would have been seen in our day in time, maybe like the Taliban in Afghanistan, or any other power-hungry, vicious human rights violating violent regimes across the globe. It would have been that manifestation in their day. And yet the message of Jonah, when Jonah begins to preach, what does he say? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. When that reaches the king, the king issues a decree by him and his nobles. So all of his other buddies, this parliament, whoever else is the decision-making power brokers in Nineveh, this is what they say. Stop Stop the wickedness, bring an end to the violence. We must repent. We must change our ways. We must alter our behavior. Stop living the way that we're living. Right? That's exactly what happens, is you see this U-turn take place, and the king issues a decree. In other words, what we have been known for, we can be known for no longer, is what he says. Because repentance, church, listen, it always involves a stopping and a starting, right? That's what repentance is. It always involves a stopping and a starting. You stop heading in one direction and you don't just stay there, right? If you're going to make a U-turn, right, you don't just cut the wheel real hard and stop halfway and say, I'm, stop- I'm-, I'm not going that way anymore, Right? I'm just going to sit still now. No, repentance actually involves full circle coming through all the way through the points of the turn to begin to head back in the other direction. So you stop one thing and you start another. Right, You stop heading east and you start heading west. That's what repentance involves. So the evil and the violence and the wickedness that they had known for, he says, I'm calling that we put an end to this. That our behavior must change. That our way of life must adapt. We must stop going one direction, start going another. For instance, let me see if I can make this plain this morning for us. Listen, there's not a person in this room this morning who hasn't been hurt or wounded by someone else's actions or their words. But listen, what real repentance looks like whenever that takes place, right, is is one, right, we... We're, we're, it's, it's natural to be wounded. It's natural to be hurt. But what is destructive in our lives is allow that to fester and grow into bitterness and unforgiveness and refuse to be reconciled and just, just hold on to the grudge. But what repentance looks like in that instance, right? Because while they were wrong and maybe sinned against you by their actions or words, you have also sinned against them by your refusal to let go of the bitterness and reconcile. And what repentance looks like whenever we've been wounded is this. It's not only saying, I forgive and I let go of that, but insofar as it depends upon me, I don't just stay in the middle of the road but I actually go through all the points of the turn and try to circle back and seek to be reconciled to that individual insofar as it depends upon me. That's the full circle of repentance. That's the obedience that comes on the back end of saying, I'm going to stop going this way and I'm going to start going this way. Because repentance is marked by obedience. If it's not, listen, it's incomplete. It's an incomplete turn. Second thing that we see about repentance in this text is that not only is it marked by obedience, but it's also an act of faith. It's an act of faith. In verses 3 and 4, we're told that Nineveh is a great city, a very large city. Okay, Three days' breadth. So three days to walk across it, going street to street through the city. And Jonah, we're told in verses 3 and 4, he makes it one-third of the way through the city. Okay, 33.33333% of the way through the city, crying out this message 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that somebody's, somebody you see somebody walking down Highway 66. Okay, between the Hunt County line in Royce City, for Rockwall Hunt County line in Royce City, and the Dallas Rockwall County line in Rowlett. So, Rockwall County, right, walking down 66, runs all the way through Rockwall County, and they got a sandwich board on them. Okay? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Right? They got a sandwich board, and they start at Dow Rock Road, and they start walking east, and they're saying, 40 days, and Rockwall County shall be overthrown before they get to John King Boulevard. The whole county right, is convicted of their sin, the flooding in the churches to repent. Right? That's what happens here. In Nineveh, Jonah has made it a third of the way through the city. One day of talking about God's judgment falling upon the people of Nineveh and the entire city is now in sackcloth and ashes and repenting. And you're like, well, how in the world could this be? Look in verse 5. We're told in verse 5 that when the Ninevites hear the message that God had given Jonah to declare, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown we're told this about the Ninevites' response. It said they believed God. They believed God. In other words, they took God at His Word. They trusted what God was saying through His prophet, through the messenger that He had sent to deliver the message to them. They trusted it. It was an act of faith on their part. You can imagine, right? Right? Here's the Assyrians prospering in the ancient world, right? And a part of the reason they've been prospering is because of their cruelty. Their bloodthirstiness. Right? And so everything seems to be moving up and right for Assyria, and yet here comes a prophet who says 40 days and all this is coming down. In order for the Ninevites to, before they ever, listen, before they ever changed their behavior, right? They had to change how they understood their behavior, how they understood their actions. So they had to come to a place of faith and trust of believing what God had said. Indeed, this was evil in the eyes of God, and it was due his just judgment would be falling upon them. His wrath was coming then they would not escape. And the same is true for you and I. In order for real change to take place in our hearts, church, in our lives, we must first have a change that takes place in our minds and trust what God has said about our attitudes and actions. It's an act of faith. Even if everything seems to be smooth in our life, whenever God shows up and He begins to speak, the question is, will I take Him at His word? About my attitudes? Will I take Him at His word about my actions? Will I take Him at His word about my thoughts? Will I take Him at His word about my desires? Will I take Him at His word? Before they could ever change their behavior, they had change the way they understood it. Right? We have to trust that what I am stopping right, in repentance is destructive and dishonoring to God, and what I'm starting is constructive and honors the Lord. So, for instance, when God shows up and he begins to speak, right, he speaks through his word, continues to speak through his word. Do I trust that what he says in his word is better? Better. Than what I think or what I feel. Do I trust that generosity is better than hoarding? Do I trust that kindness, right? Words dripping with kindness is better than cruelty. Or that patience and long suffering is better than a short fuse. And overly emotional reactions in the moment. Do I trust that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is better than filling up on hollow, empty, and deceitful idols? Do I trust that meekness is better than brashness and gentleness is better than harshness? Do I trust that it's better to exercise the one another's of the New Testament? Whenever I see a brother or sister about whom I am concerned rather than remaining silent... Do I exercise loving accountability in their life? Right? Do I believe? Do I believe God and what He has said? Do I take Him at His word? Because repentance is an act of faith. Change in the way that we conduct ourselves is always an act of faith, of believing that what God has said is better than what I think or what I feel. It's an act of obedience. Or it, 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 it's marked by obedience It's an act of faith. Third, repentance is marked by humility. A humility. And there's two ways that repentance is marked by humility. First of all, in verse 6, we read about the king's response when the message reaches his ears in the throne room. The king of Assyria does several things. Okay? First of all, he takes off of his, his robe, his royal robe, right? The symbol of, 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 of royal power. And he puts on sackcloth. Think burlap. Itchy, scratchy not luxurious, tailored robe. The second thing that he does is he vacates his throne and he sits in ashes. So he gets up off of his magisterial chair and he sits down on the ground in ashes. Now listen, there was nothing magical about the sackcloth and ashes. There were outward signs of this inner repentance that was working in the life of the king of turning in repentance from his rebellion. And yet here in the text, what you have is this, the most powerful man in Nineveh, the most powerful man in Assyria, and perhaps the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time, vacating his throne to sit in a pile of ashes and trading his royal robe for sackcloth. Essentially, it's a picture of this, church, that the king was giving up his right to be right giving up his right to be right. In other words, it's a recognition there's an authority that's higher than mine and that I must humble myself beneath that authority rather than exalting myself to be on par with or above it. I'm coming off of the throne. I'm taking off of the robe because someone else is fitted to sit in that seat and wear that garment. And he puts on sackcloth and he sits in the ashes as an outward representation of that inner reality of giving up his right to be right. See, one of the ways to determine whether or not you've had an emotional or religious experience or you've really repented of sin is to ask yourself this question, who is wearing the robe in my life? Who is on the throne of my life? Who is the ultimate authority to whom I must answer? Have I really given up my right to be right? Right? Because listen, all of us all the time think that we're right, okay? We all do, right? In fact, there's a book by William Harley. It's called When Sinners Say I Do, right? And it's about the, the gospel in the context of marriage, and one of the things that he talks about in that book is he says all of us to a person are suspect of other people, but when we look in the mirror, we won't be suspect of ourselves. And he asks a question, like, how many marriages would be ten times better than they are today if we learn to be just as suspect of ourselves as we're suspect of our spouses' motives and intentions in the context of our conflicts? And the same is true in the local church, right? We are suspect of everyone else's motives, but we refuse to be suspect of our own because for some people, they've yet to give up the right to be right. And they're going to win every argument and they're going to win every conflict and they're going to run over people in every disagreement because they've yet to give up the right to be right. See, real repentance... Real repentance is giving up the right to be right in our own eyes without measuring our opinions, our judgments, our attitudes, our thoughts, and our actions against a standard higher than our own common sense. That's what repentance looks like. It's marked by that kind of humility. Say, I'm not always right. But another way, it's, it, repentance is marked by humility in this text is this, is that repentance is also non-presumptive. It's non-presumptive. See, true repentance doesn't lead to this presumptive attitude of, of, of like, of course God's going to forgive me. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. So whatever I do, I just go do whatever I want to do. at the end of the day, I say, God, forgive me. And I start fresh the next day, Right? It's not presumptive like that. Repentance and mercy and grace is not transactional to say, if I do A, then God is obligated to do B. And that's going to result in C. So you plug that equation in every time, and that's what you get. Look at what the king says in verse 9. After he issues that proclamation calling the people to reform their ways, listen to what he says. Who knows? The king's not presuming upon God's mercy. He's not presuming upon God's grace. He's saying, who knows? I don't know. Who knows whether or not God would stay His hand? Whether if we turn, that God would turn. Whether if we repent, that God would relent and withhold disaster from falling upon us so that we would perish. He's not presuming upon God's grace. He's not presuming upon God's mercy, and that takes a degree of humility of recognizing that this relationship that we have with God, it is not transactional. It is a real relationship. But the, the king recognizes that the only hope that the people have is to throw themselves upon the mercy of God. And who knows? That he might withhold his hand of judgment. Repentance is marked by humility, giving up the right to to be right and not presuming upon God's mercy. But then, fourth, the fourth mark of it is this that real repentance is motivated by that very mercy that we're not presuming upon, it's motivated by mercy. In chapter 2, verse 10, God commands Jonah, or the the fish, to release Jonah from his gastric juices. He vomits Jonah onto dry land. And then in 3 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah for a second time. And Jonah, this time, goes to Nineveh and he begins to proclaim. And even in Jonah's message, church, let, let me, I want you to hear this clearly. Even in Jonah's message, there is a hint of God's mercy that is available to the people. Because the end of the message is, Nineveh will be overthrown. But the beginning of the message is, yet 40 days. That number 40 shows up elsewhere in the Bible, oftentimes in reference to a time of trial or a time of testing. I'll give you two examples. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, or in, in the in the story of God's deliverance of his people from the hand of Pharaoh. All right? When God comes in, he crushes Pharaoh, brings the people across on dry land, they, they parts the Red Sea, Egypt is swallowed up beneath. They Move through the Red Sea to the River Jordan. They get to the threshold. They get to the bank. They send in t- 12 spies. 10 come back and say, There are giants over there. Two come back and say, God has promised, Let's walk in faith. Let's go across the river and take the land. The people listen to the 10 instead of the two. And so they end up wandering for how long? 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years as that generation that refused to believe and trust God dies off, a new generation rises up, but all during that 40 years of wandering, there is testing that is going on. There are trials that are going on. Will this new generation trust the Lord in their wandering as God tests that in them in the wilderness? Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is baptized in that very river by John the Baptist. And when He comes up, He's led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness for how long? Forty days. Forty days. And during that time in the wilderness, His faith in His Father is put to the test as the enemy Himself shows up and tempts Jesus at multiple turns To circumvent, circumvent God's purposes. Right, turn the turn the stones into bread, throw yourself off the pinnacle. God will command His angels concerning you. Right, you could have all the glory without any of the pain. And at every juncture. Jesus shows himself to be faithful to his Father as he's tested in the wilderness for 40 days. When that number 40 shows up, it's that idea of testing or of trial. And so before Nineveh is overthrown, what do they have an opportunity to do? To be tested and tried if they would turn from their wickedness and evil, that God would relent. There's a hint of God's mercy even in the message. Here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity for a second chance. Here's an opportunity to turn away from the wickedness and the evil that you had engaged in. And listen, church, it is this opportunity that I believe brings the people of Nineveh to a place of repentance because they, listen, God did not need to send a prophet to Nineveh to destroy it. As if God could not from the throne of heaven just say, be done. Right? And fire and brimstone would rain down upon them. We've seen it already in the Old Testament. But He needed to send a prophet to Nineveh to deliver it. And that's what He does, extending this opportunity for mercy. And it's the mercy of God, church. Church. That motivates and leads to repentance. That he would, you know what mercy is? Mercy is the withholding of what is rightly deserved. Grace is the giving of something that is not deserved, but mercy is the withholding of something that is rightly deserved. And so, in God giving them 40 days, he's withholding what is rightly deserved. His judgment does not fall upon them, he's being merciful. And extending to them another opportunity. And listen, that doesn't just happen in the book of Jonah. In Romans chapter 2, in the Apostle Paul's argument, as he argues, uh, he puts together this argument about how all of us. Right. All of us, Jew and Gentile alike, the most religious and the most irreligious people on the earth are all bound up under the same judgment of God against sin. But in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul makes this astonishing statement. Listen to what he writes. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness, God's kindness, and forbearance and patience, not knowing or being ignorant of the fact that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's the kindness of God, the mercy of God, withholding judgment for a season to give opportunity for men and women to repent. Repentance is always, real repentance anyway, is always motivated by mercy. Not just fear but an astonishment at mercy because what real repentance says in our hearts is not this, well, of course God's going to withhold His judgment from me, but what real repentance says is this, I cannot believe that God would be so merciful as to withhold His judgment from a sinner like me. That's, that's authentic, genuine repentance. It's not just being afraid of all the consequences that are going to come, but it's being astounded by the mercy of God that has been withheld. Judgment's been withheld. And there is an opportunity to repent. And there is no greater way in which God has done that than through Christ Himself. That is the judgment of God fell upon Jesus. Listen, God removed His mercy from His Son so that you and I could receive it. And in Christ, it's the kindness of God that's extended to us. And it's meant not so we say, like Paul says elsewhere, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What does he say? By no means. But the mercy and grace of God are the motivation for repentance and holiness, not the excuse for perversion and rebellion. So we don't presume upon it, but we throw ourselves See, real repentance always involves obedience. It's an act of faith, of believing and trusting what God has said, not what I think or feel. Real repentance is marked by humility that gives up its right to be right and doesn't presume upon the grace or the mercy of God, but it's motivated by that very mercy because God has withheld judgment. Judgment's coming one day still for the earth, it's still coming. But for those who are in Christ their judgment has already been dispensed. They've rec- Christ received it in their place. So you need not fear the judgment of God that is coming, but that you would be amazed by the mercy that you've received that would lead you to this life of repentance. Daily, giving up your right to be right. Daily, not presuming upon God's grace. Daily, walking in obedience. And daily, trusting what God has said. Taking Him at His word. This is the kind of exemplary repentance that the Ninevites show not only to that first century or that or, or that 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 Old Testament Jewish audience. But also to us today. So I want to leave you with a, a couple of questions, first of all. In, in summary, first of all. Are you walking in obedience? Is there really, really been a, a, a full point turn or have you just kind of stopped and said, I want to stop doing all, the, all these bad things I used to do? Or are you giving yourself now to love and to joy and to peace and to patience and to kindness and the goodness and to gentleness and to faithfulness and self-control as the Holy Spirit's bearing those fruit in you, equipping you and empowering you to do that? Are you walking in obedience today? Second of all, are you trusting today actively I didn't ask you, did you you trust in 1986 whenever you walked the aisle at youth camp? But are you actively trusting today, taking God at His word, and responding in faith? Are you giving up your right to be right and measuring your thoughts, your intentions, the judgments of your heart, your attitudes and actions according to a standard that is above your own common sense? And then conforming your life to that, not presuming on God's grace. And are you standing amazed in the presence, as the old hymn says, of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean, that His mercy, His judgment has been stayed and now you enjoy the blessings of God Himself. Is there a need for a U-turn in your life today? If so, I want you to know you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to get across that bridge. It can happen right now. Let's pray together. Father, today, I thank you for those gathered in the room. I thank you for those listening online. I thank you for the way that your word, as it goes forth, you, you promise us that it would not return void. But it would accomplish the purpose for which you have ordained it, for which you have sent it out. And this morning I pray that it would do that very thing. I pray that our lives, that our families, that our church would be marked by repentance. That we would receive the message that was written for our upbuilding hundreds of years ago that would ring true in our hearts and our minds and that would bear fruit Father if there are areas or relationships in our, our own life where we have refused to relinquish the right to be right and not measuring what we think how we feel Against your revealed will in your word, help us to turn from that. If we've been presuming upon your mercy and assuming that relationship with you is just transactional, that if we do A, that you're always going to do B, in some ritualistic way, help us to turn from that and know there is abundant mercy for those who come in authentic repentance. But that for those who presume upon it. That Father, all that we are doing is deceiving ourselves and hardening our hearts. Help us to walk in obedience. Completing the U turn all the way to the other side, not just stopping some things, but starting others. And help us to stand amazed daily at the mercy and magnificence of Christ, upon whom our judgment fell, so that we would know the tenderness of a Father. there any in the room this morning under the sound of my voice, Father, who have not ever crossed the line of faith and repentance, turning from running and ruling their own life, humility, presenting themselves to you in faith. I pray they would this morning. They would not wait. They would not wait for a crisis moment. I do so today, and for those who have, Father, help us to rejoice this morning in Your mercy and wait on You in our lives. We ask it in Christ's name.